I think for young filmmakers or young cinematographers in particular, just shoot as much as you possibly can. The more you shoot, the more experience you have, the more situations you find yourself having to solve problems for, the more better prepared you'll be when you're actually getting paid to do it and, and, and there's an amount of uh, pressure and responsibility involved. Study other people's work, watch as many films as you can. Stay true to yourself and trust your instincts. They're usually correct and embrace fear and push boundaries. Don't be like everybody else. Stay diligent, keep trying. If you've got what it takes, you will get there. And action. Welcome to the Art of the Shot podcast the place to be for interesting, inspiring, and insightful conversations with the people behind the camera on the most strikingly shot projects out there. This episode is brought to you by Evidence Cameras, and I'm Derek Stetler. I'm a writer and filmmaker, and I'm fascinated by how the stories I love are brought to life on the screen. My guest today is none other than Jeff Cronenweth, ASC. Jeff is the two-time Oscar-nominated cinematographer behind many of David Fincher's films, including The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and their first film together, and Jeff's first feature film, Fight Club. And if you're wondering, no, we don't talk about Fight Club. Well, maybe a little. You'll have to listen to find out. Jeff has also shot numerous commercials and music videos for some of the biggest names, including Madonna, David Bowie, Shakira, Taylor Swift, and Katy Perry. And this month marked the release of Jeff's first foray into television with the pilot to the Amazon Prime original series, Tales from the Loop, which is a pretty unique piece of work. A sci-fi anthology adapted from the paintings of Swedish artist Simon Stallenhag. What do you do? When someone says something's impossible, I prove it's possible. One day, many years from now, you'll wonder if this really happened. Or if it was a dream. Everyone is connected to the loop in one way or another. What you may not know is that Jeff Cronenweth is the son of legendary cinematographer Jordan Cronenweth, the eye behind the air-defining look of Blade Runner. Listen on for our in-depth conversation about everything from how he forged his own path while following in his father's footsteps, to his approach to lighting based on story, working with David Fincher, his work on Tales from the Loop, including how he achieved a never-before-seen lighting effect, and his trick for making sure eye lights look more natural. I hope you enjoy. And if you do, please subscribe to get notified of future episodes. It's really such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Happy to be here. So I want to start with your father, Jordan Cronenweth. He's known as one of the most influential cinematographers in motion picture history. And it's quite a legacy. You're one of the few whose father was a cinematographer uh, just like you. And I'm sure it helped you. But I'm also sure it wasn't a free pass straight to opportunity. So how did you end up making your career happen? How did you find your path to being where you are now? Well, uh, 
it's a it's a bit of a double edged sword. It's it's a wonderful opportunity, and don't get me wrong, I'm blessed to have been uh, the son of somebody so talented and to something that I actually fell in love with and 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 shared that passion. Um, I was exposed to it very early on, and and uh, uh, before I ever really realized what it was that I wanted to to be, I was attracted to the kind of camaraderie and collaboration that happens on the set. I mean. Every day you go out to overcome the obstacles of that day to create uh, an experience and a visual language uh, to share in a film. And so I loved that kind of uh, uh, teamwork in a, in, a, in, in a battle situation every day to win. And so I knew that I wanted to be part of that. I just didn't know how. And as I grew and was exposed to more of it, um, I realized that I really wanted to be part of the camera department and, you know, desire uh, one day to be a cinematographer if, it, if things worked out that way. So uh, I, I started college. Uh, I had really kind of just made it through high school because I was too busy playing sports and or shooting Super 8 films, which I loved. Um, and school didn't mean that much to me until I realized that when I wanted to go to University of Southern California, I wouldn't have been able to get in based on my high school grades. So I enrolled at a junior college and for the first time uh, made the dean's list and got straight A's because I had something that I wanted to do. And I was there for about a year and a half and an opportunity came up. Uh, This is in 79. Uh, and the unions were, were very difficult to get into at that time. And there was a writer strike going on. And there was a lot of eyes on Hollywood and there was not a lot of production. And an opportunity came up to be a staff loader at a commercial production company. At the same time, my dad was starting to prep uh, Blade Runner. And it was his advice and his opinion that although there might be an opening on Blade Runner, the the loader position at the commercial company was a much better opportunity and a better shot of, of getting into the IA. So I did that. Um, in, the, in the end, uh, a position on Blade Runner did open up, and the gentleman that took it, a good friend of mine, uh, became a cinematographer years later and, and is in the ASC along with me. Um, so <laughs> in hindsight, that could have been a choice, but honestly, I was only 19 years old and that was a, an extremely complicated uh, uh, and difficult shoot with lots of politics and lots of uh, extreme conditions to be under. And it would have been very tough uh, being that young to be on that set. So in lieu of that, I, I was uh, the company I worked for was only uh, half a mile away from uh, the back lot at Warner Brothers. And so I would do my day work and then I'd go over there and, and watch until I couldn't keep my eyes open any longer and then drove home. Um, that lasted for about a year and a half. And I uh, went back to summer school, completed uh, the required classes and then uh, made it into, was accepted to USC and then went to film school for two years and started working after that. One of the things that's that's an interesting kind of question about approaches to take and what I did versus some of my friends uh, is that I did it kind of the tradesman way. And I went and worked my way through the ranks of the camera department as a loader, as a second assistant, as a camera assistant, focus puller, and finally as an operator. 
you know, with the goal of, of, of becoming a cinematographer one day. A lot of my friends from USC, for example, like John Schwartzman and Robert Brinkman, both people, both cinematographers that were in my class, uh, came right out of school and started shooting. They shot industrials, low, low budget commercials, and it was the beginning of the of the music in, music video industry. It hadn't quite exploded yet, but it was on its way, and so shot a lot of music videos. In the end, I don't know. I think it's an individual person's. Uh, personality and learning curve that that would be would, would be the deciding factor on what who benefits from rut for me um i really wanted to watch professionals on a higher scale on a much grander uh stage accomplish and solve problems and uh then then go out and try to like discover through through my own shooting um i also wanted to spend as much time with my father and collaborating and watching him as I could. And so the tradesman way, uh, afforded me that opportunity. And, you know, I worked for him for almost, you know, 20 years and, and that, that really, uh, worked out for me. And in the end, by the time my, my buddies from USC were shooting, um, really large scale studio films, I was shooting fight club. So, we both got to the same places right around the same time. It's, it's a dealer's choice as to who's better. I think it, it all depends on the individual. Uh, and then, so my father was forced to retire from shooting because of uh, complications from Parkinson's disease. And so in the process of me assisting for him and then operating for him, um, I, I was o- overly protective of, of, of his position, of his craft, of him. And I did as much as I could to facilitate that. Once he retired, and really the same year, I ended up uh, assisting for a cameraman named Sven Nyquist. Sven, you know, shot 26 Bergman films and has two Oscars. Yeah, of course. He's, he's one of the greats. He's one of the greats. Uh, and he was 68 when I met him. I'd say second day of shooting, uh, and me still being very young, I was in my 20s, um, started reading light for him. Now, it wasn't, it didn't make everybody on the set happy. There was a lot of people on his crew that had been with him for 20 years, and here this kid is reading light for him, you know, and and it looked very arrogant. But what it was is born out of my assisting my father and within a day or two Sven was so comfortable with me doing it I just did it for the next five pictures with him the point of those two stories is that uh in my effort to support them I actually learned a craft that I that I didn't have you know that I wasn't necessarily going out to learn at least not at that degree at that time and so it really set me up for knowledge and and understanding certainly the the physical and chemical and scientific properties of 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 processing film exposing film of light and shadow of directions of light and and compositions and so it was it was like an unbelievable continuation of film school which i think it, it for me in particular really 
was a wonderful education in, in getting it and getting to a part of, of where I became a, a cinematographer. Fascinating. Wow. Yeah. So it, it really shows that there is not one path to becoming a top cinematographer. And you kind of had like a, almost a um, case study in uh, between you and, and your friends and contemporaries as far as how to to get to where you both wanted to go. Exactly. Um, let me let me let me elaborate a little bit back on your on your question about uh, working with my father. Because um, one of the uh, one of the things about being the son of somebody that's in that in that has had that level of success, um, and everybody approaches it differently. But I was incredibly self conscious of being the cinematographer's son on set, and by that I meant I never wanted to be the one that was handed the handed the silver spoon. And, and I, oftentimes um, people on set didn't know we were related because were related I kept it such a, a low key, a key thing. Uh, and then I, I never wanted to be the one that caused a problem. And so I worked three times as hard as anybody else would to, to be better, to be more supportive, to make shots sharp, to check the labs, to do everything. And I, I think because of that, it obviously made me a more conscientious uh, camera team member, but also uh, a better understanding and absorption of, of, of all of it. And, and that was just out of uh, not wanting to be a favored child or a favored relative and making sure that everybody appreciated that I earned my place there and I was good or better than the next person over. And that's why I, uh, that's why I achieved what I did. And so it's a weird pressure, you know, to put yourself under. I mean, I I've seen the opposite where somebody is given something as a handout and then they take advantage of it and are not as, as good. And that terrified me. And I never wanted to be the disappointment. I never wanted to, uh, undermine his his success by being uh, not carrying my own weight. So that made me a, a much better focused um, uh, and driven uh, team member. And then you know it was funny um, years later when uh, when I started shooting and more more specifically after I shot Fight Club, I'd say for a, the first couple years. Every interview, every conversation started off by, what's it like to be the son of? And they tried to, like, in a way, create this kind of uh, tension or um, rivalry between the two of us. And it, it simply doesn't exist. I would go, uh, my standard answer was something like, there is no one like him. He is a unique artist. There's Conrad Hall. There's he's a unique artist. Their genius is in their own right, and I don't aspire to be them. That they did that. They earned that. I will be whatever I'm going to be. Uh, that's still yet to be determined. But I will be my own artist. Uh, but let's not look, you know, at at one of a kind uh, geniuses. And and I just never let it go there because they're too gifted and too unique and brought too much to the screen and and accomplished so much that, um, and it was so early in my career that, you know, I would always have to say, 
let's talk about the movie I shot. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, you've certainly created your own path and your own aesthetic. And going back to what you were saying about how you handled your father's legacy in terms of wanting to really prove yourself, that, I mean, th- that's right there, that the thinking behind that I would say is really why you are where you are today because I would I, I think any uh, producer and director would want to work with a cinematographer who is really who takes that path rather than taking the path of just riding on the coattails and just you know using that to get to where they want to go rather than using that as a reason to be extra diligent and extra focused and extra careful with uh, what they're doing with their work. So you were, you, you're standing on his shoulders, but you never rode on his coattails. I mean, I'm sure I was afforded and, and doors open. There's no doubt about it. And I got, uh, I got respect probably sooner than I probably earned it based on that. Yeah. But then I, I, would, but I, I would assume that a bit. Yeah. I'm not being silly about it, of course. But, but then again, that then, then there was an expectation and a level that you had to maintain or it wouldn't have lasted as long as it's lasted for me. So, um, you know, and I and I still to this day, and this is just something um, uh, fun to hear, is I, I had so much respect and admiration for those guys. My father, Conrad Hall, Owen Roisman, Billy Fraker, John Alcott, uh, John Alonzo, uh, just different guys of that era um, and what they did in those times. Uh, that I still uh, feel like I'm a kid at the at the at the kids' table and still have a lot to prove and aspire to uh, to be in their league. You know, I mean, truth be told, I've shot some good movies, but but I still uh, I put them on such a a pedestal uh, because they were so influential in my life for, from such a young age, those names and those movies. And we went to see them and, it was, and, uh, and they were all friends of my father's that I still put that on. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So do you personally feel that no matter where you get and what you achieve, you'll always be striving for something more or do you think you're going to get to a point where you will have said to yourself okay you know i did it i i have achieved what i you know have always aspired to um that's a fun question it's not like i'm torturing myself or i feel like i haven't accomplished anything yeah i just feel like you can always keep going and there's more and i don't know that there has to be an end uh, or or a le- level of, of, of uh, sation. To me, um, there's always another challenge and an opportunity to do something great and f- bring something brilliant to the screen, whether it's the big screen or the little screen, and tell a story and, and make light dance and do something. And so uh, I feel like I'm at a place, uh, when I measure success, I'm at a place where uh, there's a lot of respect and doors open and people treat you for, and then when you go to different countries and you do to different places, you get, you always get the benefit of the doubt and you get the b- better crews or the better equipment or those kind of things. And to me, that's far more important <laughs> than any kind of other, uh, um, you know, pats on the back. To me, that's something useful. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you don't ever plan on retiring until you're you're forced to 
do you think you're you're gonna work you know well into your 80s like some directors do or are you planning on retiring at some point uh when you know before you have to i'm haven't really thought that much about it you know um i want to work as long as it's fun and good and i want to you know enjoy life at the same time so i but i have so much pleasure when i'm shooting that 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 is part of it so i would hope to be shooting for a long time um, it's a funny industry. It's changing and evolving all the time. Um, I don't know where it's going. I don't think anybody does, but it's exciting and, and, uh, I want to be part of it. Yeah. It seems like it, it, to me, it, it feels like it comes across in your work, which is why one of the questions I wanted to specifically ask you was about the environment on the sets that you work on. It feels to me like it's probably different than, uh, most sets, although naturally, there is a lot of commonality between, you know, film sets all being somewhat chaotic and, and frantic and then suddenly, you know, extraordinarily um, coordinated and, and precise. But what's it like for you? How do you how do you like to work on set? Um, I, I, I like to think that I carry over some of the stuff I learned from my father and Sven. And it was all about a calmness and a, and a control energy that was more more progress more things achieved um more effort and energy uh, i i've never been one from the school of intimidation or or fear monging or screaming or yelling i feel like if if people are are sharing the same integrity that you bring to the set every day and and you you find crew members that that do do that then you don't have to say a word. Everybody knows when they've dropped the ball or made a mistake or could have done better or something didn't quite work out or you're forced to compromise because of somebody else's actions. Everybody's aware of that. We all know that we're all professionals. And that 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 hurts more, stings more, having been on the other side of that uh, than it does by, uh, you know, uh, causing a scene. And that, that, that's demoralizing. And I don't think it, it makes for a great team effort and and oftentimes you're you're on these things for a long time it's not a short haul i mean dragon tattoo was 156 shoot days that's not that's that's not counting the weekends and the travel days and the holidays and the airplane rides to and from you know across the continents over and over and over again i think i was on that for 11 months amazing wow and so I've been on sets where that's the style where people's up, people are always uptight and frenetic and there's this tension and there are people that work really well within that. It's just not my kind of, it's not my temperament or my pace. And, uh, and certainly even, you know, Fincher sets are not like something, they're not happy go lucky. It's all about the work and, 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 and what you can put up on the screen but they're not unhappy there there's there it's just you're there to work and and you want to get the best possible images or performances or whatever it is that you're bringing to the to the project and uh and i always find at the end that those are the ones that have the most uh integrity and legs that last on something that 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 you can be proud of for, for a very long time it feels like that it 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 feels like the approach that you have really is translated into the, not just the images, but the feeling that they carry on the screen. That's one of the reasons I wanted to ask about the, what it's like on set for you. I mentioned the word fear and, and look, look, 
uh, I would be lying to you if I didn't say that that I think most people would be if they say that there 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 isn't a level of fear or unknown when you walk into set or stage for the first time or a set for the first time on that set, uh, or you may not have every answer resolved already, or something happens and changes and that 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 puts you in an unprepared position and then you have to solve that dilemma. However, the, oh, of course, yeah, that's just filmmaking. That's filmmaking, but here's the kicker: like fear is a really good thing. Fear keeps you fresh and keeps you on your toes. It keeps you focused. It keeps you original. I think fear is great when you embrace it. If fear is only problematic when it stops you from co- accomplishing something or it stops you from uh, yeah. creating and, and going forward, then fear is a problem. But as long as you're not overwhelmed by fear, then fear can be something that you can really utilize. And what do you do to keep the fear as a fuel rather than an obstacle. I embrace it. I I, I I don't ever want to be complacent. I don't ever want to take the easiest route. I want to push the boundaries. I want to go to play that I don't necessarily know how it, if, you know, that it's going to work out perfect uh, and discover something. And then that combined with, you know, my experience and, and uh, the guys I keep around me usually keeps me in a right place. It feels like what you're what you're saying is also consistent with how you began your career and your perspective on wanting to work extra hard because of your father being who he was rather than working less hard. It seems like you really uh, you approach things not in a way of trying to find and take the easiest path but the most effective one. Yeah, I, I have to do that because I know my personality. I mean, if I could, if, if there was a way of doing it, uh, given, given into my own inclinations, I would do something that's more efficient and that's not always the best creative choice. And so uh, always in the back of your mind thinking about uh, is this something that is, does, does this look like it would be something that you did? Is this something that, the the guys that you grew up with would do is this something that your contemporaries would would do how would they approach that you know and and uh are you taking a shortcut and so those things uh are those little voices help you kind of make better choices than uh left on maybe on on my own well it it seems also like now that i'm speaking with you about it you're probably not one of the guys who is rolling their eyes when Fincher calls cut on the 99th take and asks for another one after that. You're right there with him saying, yeah, I mean, come on, let's, let's find what else there is to this. <laughs> uh, I was probably there on 75. I don't know after that. <laughs> I can't, can't, can't guarantee you that. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe 75 then. But still, the philosophy obviously um, was a match for Fincher, basically, uh, which which is obvious just thinking about it because of your long working relationship together. Yeah, uh, I'd love to talk about that. Uh, but you mentioned some of the things that your father taught you, and and I also want to just ask a specific question about that. Um, what else did he instill in you that that you feel has uniquely and strongly informed your work? Uh, well, I just loved the way that he he was treated by the crew, the amount of respect that he got, but it came from respecting other people and giving people credit and making people part of the process. We're all doing this together. This isn't me. Let's win this for us, not for me to get more accolades. 
and uh, the way he manages that, you know, that, that's there's a there's a huge element of, of success for cinematographers in managing all these personalities that you have, uh, and production and producers and things that tend to kind of like money people that things that are that can be barriers into getting what you need to succeed, you know, on a daily basis, and so navigating that is, a, is is an art in and of itself yeah it sure is um and it takes years to to it, it took me years i mean even watching my father do it it took me my my own time to find my way of navigating the, you know uh sets and etiquette and getting you know getting the resources that you need and um you know just integrity and you know watching him Watching him on Blade Runner, uh, there was a point on Blade Runner when he didn't, we didn't know what it was that, that was his ailment. We thought it might have been MS, and so there was nothing, we weren't oh. doing anything about it. And he, he was, was limited to a wheelchair and would be lifted to the eyepiece. Um, wow. But never, never complained, never stopped fighting for every frame in that movie as we all know and the integrity that he brought in spite of the uh the duress that he was under on a, on a physical level every day um and it just was it's impressive and and the long hours and never not fighting the fight uh, as long as you could to make the best image possible and so that those kind of things um I could never let go of. It's like, you know, when you're checking something when it's the 18th hour and you're shooting the insert of a key on the table and everybody wants to go home and you're like, well, that's good enough. And you go, wait a second. It's not, he wouldn't have done that. That's not how you, you don't give up. You still make that shot because, yeah. you know, and this is my own voice speaking. You know, if you do 18 shots in a day and, or let's say that's a lot, let's say you do, let's say you do 18. And you do two that aren't good. Say two of them that you just you are fine, but 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 they, you know that they could be better. And you add that up, add that up over a hundred day schedule. Now you have two hundred okay shots. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Then now that's a lot of screen time. Yeah. You just took your great shots and you mitigated them by throwing in two hundred shots that could have been better. Yeah, and that you know could have been better if you didn't just give up because it was you know, easy and convenient. Right. You never know when those shots are going to appear or disappear. So you kind of need to really stay focused, uh, for every shot, knowing that, uh, anything in, uh, could be used at any time. And, uh, and day one doesn't look like such a big deal having one shot, but day 75, that's a lot of extra shots that aren't going to be, um, promoting your, your images. Hi, let me take a moment to tell you about the sponsor of this episode evidence cameras if you're in the los angeles area evidence cameras is a fantastic place to get all of your rental gear needs met they're a tight-knit team of working camera professionals passionate about everything camera related including helping you create your vision they strive to go beyond just accommodating your gear list which i might add they can do no matter what you need with tons of gear and extensive relationships they can help you get any piece of equipment you want Located in Echo Park, just 10 minutes from downtown L.A., I highly suggest you check them out for your next project. Yeah, so your father really had a commitment to the craft that, that kept him going despite plenty of reasons to give up or to 
just stop working, you know, after after Blade Runner, certainly. Uh, but he, he worked for at least 10, 10 more years and even worked with David Fincher, uh, not to completion, um, unfortunately, but he worked with him on Alien 3. So that leads me to want to talk about your work with David Fincher, because funny enough, both you and your father worked with him and your first big film that really started your professional Hollywood career was with David Fincher on Fight Club. How did that uh, working relationship start? Well, uh, it started with my father. Uh, we we did a music video with David uh, uh, called Oh Father, a Madonna video, black and white. The last video they did on that album, uh, her big biggest hit album. And uh, that was our first experience together. Um, interestingly, uh, about a week after we, we finished the video, I got a call from David and he said, um, I need to shoot two inserts of Madonna. Uh, can you meet me at Panavision? And I was like, of course, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll come, uh, come over. You know, it was like tomorrow. Can you meet me at noon at Panavision? I said, sure. He goes, bring your meters. And I was like, what? Bring my meters? Why would I do that? And uh, he ended up having me light it and shoot it. You know, they were inserts. They made it into the video. And that was like the first experience. And then maybe six months or a year later, <clears throat> we were doing a, an AT&T commercial uh, that became an iconic spot. It, it, it was... I remember them. It, it promoted all futuristic... Uh, devices that we'd have and they all came true which is phenomenal they all did um yeah i remember seeing a retrospective of them i think like last year exactly last year the year before they 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 went back and reflected on it and one of the vignettes in that campaign was uh a guy on a beach with an ipad not an mm -hmm. ipad a pad we didn't know what they were going to yes. be but a pad i remember it and david you know david being david and all the integrity in the world again uh, wanted it not to be a California beach. He wanted it to have a, a tropical Caribbean kind of feel. So he paid for uh, the the actor, myself, the first AD, and his producer to go to St. John's to shoot that shot. I shot it. You know, I I lit it and shot it, and that kind of was the the combination beginning of him appreciating my ability, but I would, that was years and years before I ever <clears throat> shot a feature for him. Mm -hmm. But what happened along the way. And once my father stopped working, I ended up shooting second unit on seven and an operator to be camera. I shot second unit on the game and operated the B camera and assumed that when David called and asked me to come meet him for Fight Club that he was interviewing me to talk about shooting second unit on Fight Club. Uh, I didn't expect him to, to tell me to uh, read the script and let him know tomorrow if I was interested. <laughs> wow. Quite honestly, as soon as he handed it to me, I was interested. I don't care if the pages were blank. If he's directing it, I was going to shoot it. But I uh, maintained my my uh composure coolness yeah and composure and kind of walked out of there and then danced all the way to my car um but uh it was funny because he presented it to me or sold it to me if you will as that this will probably be the best 
script I get to direct. Mm-hmm. This will probably be the best film Brad gets to act in. And it probably won't make any money, but it will be our, our signature for the 90s in much the way that Blade Runners impacted the, the 80s. And that was that was well, uh, he called it, didn't he? That was the goal. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Now, what happened, obviously, is when you invest almost two years of your life in something like he did, you you, you want it to financially succeed as much as it does culturally and and uh, is appreciated uh, for the for the filmmaking skills in it and. Unfortunately, when it was first released, it was not it was not a, a, a success, and 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 no, neither was Blade Runner. Right. Um, it t- it took years for Blade Runner to be respected and and come into its whole you know its fu- fu- fruition, and and then it took. Yeah. Now they're both cult classics, and they're both in the you know in the national registry of, of yeah. films, the Library of Congress. Yeah, the Library of Congress, and so. Um, <laughs> ironically, it, it did, it did, it followed in the same footsteps, you know, I mean, there's reasons why Blade Runner, when it was released, I think everybody thought that there was, it was another Star Wars and we're kind of disappointed that there was this really cerebral journey about humanity, uh, and, uh, and living regardless of whether you're an android or a human, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, Fight Club uh, got lost in the fighting, which was just a metaphor. Right. And, you know, the Columbine High School stuff, it had happened the summer we were still shooting. And uh, the studio was very leery of, of promoting the film with any of the fight footage. So we shot commercials that were very irreverent uh, and funny uh, that they never utilized. And instead, they marketed it with fights. And... I know uh, my parents would not have seen it had I not shot it because they thought it was a fighting movie. Yeah, the marketing for sure was all wrong for that film. All wrong. Uh, you know, it, it, it became the top DVD and now is a cult film, of course. But um, So it became a success later financially. But uh, that's basically when Fincher, you know, his, his deals now are he has, uh, he has control of marketing and he's not going to do it because – you put your heart and soul into something and then somebody has a hair ball scheme that's not as um, tied into the movie or, or doesn't hold as much, uh, doesn't hold it to their chest as much and, and they're wrong and, and there goes everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so. it feels like a lot of those first films in, in his career really taught him uh, to have as much control as he can and to be able to, um, transcend a lot of the you know politics and the the committee decisions that are made by you know people at the studio like with alien 3 that was like you know famously a horrendous experience for him but i think obviously all those experiences helped uh, really mold him into the filmmaker he is today and and create each of his films as very uniquely his and i don't know if that necessarily would have happened if he didn't make all these decisions as a result of you know the botched marketing on fight club for example yeah of course of course (laughs) there's not there's not many people in the world that can can ask for what he gets but then again there's not many directors that can deliver you know consistently you know like him there there are there are few but but there there are few 
Yeah, and even even though many can deliver consistently, it's so um, completely his vision. It's not just that he performs at a high level. It's that each film you know from him will be imprinted with his signature all over the place. And of course, that um, that goes to this the the visuals obviously as well. So, what would you say your influence from him has been and and what are your considerations and guiding principles when it comes to capturing a scene well i mean aesthetically from a light perspective and from a camera kind of movement philosophy i i think we really come from the same place and so it's why it's so comfortable and easy for us to make movies together um that said you know each project is unique in and of itself and the tools you embellish and the storytelling techniques that you employ are all kind of dedicated to what that story is asking to be or what David wants that to be. And then you make your contributions and find your creative outlets within that. So, uh, I mean, every day on a set is, is a learning experience. In general, you discover things, but every day with David, you find out something unique. I mean, he is such a, a one-of-a-kind filmmaker um, that it's really hard to box him into a, a particular style or lesson, but he is a historian of film and he uses that knowledge base along with, you know, his incredible intellect to, to then reinvent perspectives are a way of, of delivering something in a slightly different or new different way and he has such a pulse on culture that he delivers these films regardless of what their period is time period or what their storyline is but keeps them embellished in what's happening or what we are all kind of wanting to see in, in a film experience now i don't know if that makes sense but yeah it does well it's part of his uh perspectives and artist and how he approaches his work it's interesting that he is such a historian as you say of film and he is such a complete uh cinephile he's so well informed but has such a passion for for cinema as a whole which obviously you know you can't help but but use that as a filmmaker in in your work but you you'd think some of the films that he enjoys would be closer to the kind of the kinds of films he makes but it seems just from what I know of him that his taste is not necessarily uh, a complete reflection of the kind of work he makes. No, not at all. I mean, one of his favorite films or what, what he says got him into the film industry is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Right. Yeah. I remember hearing about that. Which my father was a camera operator on. Oh, wow. I didn't know that part, though. Yeah. Conrad Hall photographed it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Very interesting. My dad was a camera operator, yeah. Yeah, but I know he's also a fan of, of Terrence Malick's work, which, of course, is very different from his work. <laughs> Their style is different. Their approach is different. Yeah, it's it's funny. When we were, um, <laughs> when we were shooting Social Network, um, Malick had not done a digital film, was, was a fan of David's, and we were using the same costume designer, and so he came to visit the set uh, several times, uh, but then you know started coming just to to watch me and the camera, just to you know see just so that he had a better understanding of how this new technology works. 
And, and at least on two different occasions, I would be looking, lining up a shot on the camera and, uh, and the PA would come up to me and say, uh, there's some kind of like homeless dude outside that says he want he, that he can come on the set and and watch. And I said, "Is he wearing like a a, a, hat. a, a photographer's uh, vest and a hat?" And they go, "Yeah." I go, "Yeah, yeah, that that's homeless Terrence Malick. Could you please let him in?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the most celebrated <laughs> filmmakers alive today. <laughs> I just like I couldn't believe what it. What was that PA fire? <laughs> I just gave him a list of films good. to go watch and then talk about homeless good, people. Good, good. Yes, I, I'd say actually he should be educated rather than fired. Exactly. It's funny. Yeah, very interesting. But then, then again, that just goes to show you, here, here is a guy that's done these classic you know, uh, imprint on Hollywood, mm -hmm. and he couldn't wait to get on set to watch us use this next the new technology. Reminds me of a story of uh, Stanley Kubrick and um, James Cameron meeting. And, of course, James was completely, you know, enamored with, with Stanley, one of his heroes. But Stanley couldn't stop talking about his latest film of, uh, I think at that time, was True Lies. He wanted to know all about how True Lies was shot. Exactly. I love those stories about how the people, you know, your heroes are just as much a fan of you as, as you are of them. Exactly. Which Which I think is actually only natural because, you know, great artists find inspiration from the great work that they see. And how can you not, you know, you're sensitive to the things that inspire you and the things that are done at a very high level. So how could you not be, you know, enamored with people who are creating work that's different from you, but has something to teach you and something that strikes you? Exactly. So what what attracts you to a story because it all starts with that what um what are the kinds of stories that you find yourself most resonating with that you uh end up working on i want to read something that that that's moving that that has a human aspect to it that has character arcs that change that has drama whether it's life or whether it's between people or whether it's good or bad uh good or evil or romance or not or somebody that something's taken away or deprived from and then and then look at the opportunities to uh to paint light for that and then where is it going to take place and what should the camera be doing or saying um and and you can come with a perfect kind of methodology to a particular story but until you get to meet the people until you get to live it until you scout locations until you uh see storyboards and costumes and sets and set designs and rehearsals um it's not a, it's not a clear picture at least not for me you know i'm not somebody that can look at a script on the outside and then take a a, a set sketch and tell you where all the light's going to be um, I have a ballpark idea about what it's going to be, but to me, it's an organic experience and you have to kind of, you, you give yourself all the tools and ammunition you need, but still it's going to be something that you tweak and, and, and tune to, to the particular performance and, and, and the feeling, uh, once you see the scene enacted, I mean, Obviously, for enormous scenes or big night exteriors or stunts or any of that stuff, you have to have a big game plan. But still, the nuancing of it comes as you're actually starting to shoot it. Yeah. Now, the fact that you were talking about paintings is, is interesting because it leads me perfectly into Tales from the Loop, which is probably the first piece of cinema completely 
inspired by a series of paintings. <laughs> I know, of course, many cinematographers are, you know, inspired by paintings and use many of of the great paintings from the past as references for for their lighting. Right. But for a story itself to be inspired by another piece of art like that, without a story necessarily attached to that art, and then the story to um, emerge from the visuals is such a unique situation and i think it's a beautiful idea for a piece of filmmaking to be inspired so directly from another piece of art so i'd love to talk about the process of adapting the visuals from the paintings to the screen but more generally i'd, I'd like to first uh, take this opportunity to ask about your perspective on the art itself of filmmaking and of cinema i mean the craft is so technical but at the end of the day it is an art form uh, and the only one that incorporates all the other art forms uh, I, I, I completely agree. Um, it started off a lot more scientific than it evolved into. I mean, at the very beginning, it was, you know, it was the photochemical process. And so it was a lot of science and, uh, uh, you know, the first, first cameramen on the first kind of silent movies, uh, were picked because they actually had a camera <laughs> or they, or they knew how to, they knew how to, they owned one and they knew how to load it and they knew, knew how to process the film. Um, Sounds a lot like like a situation a lot of you know young filmmakers find themselves in today, where you know they they happen to have a nice camera package and they get jobs because they have the gear. Well, you know everybody starts somewhere, right? And uh, being at the right place at the right time or having the right piece of equipment at the right time is just as good as a reason as anything to to at least get your foot in the door. Um, and then and then it changed, you know. It, 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 you watched you watched the the quality uh, of filmmaking evolve as as the equipment evolved as the film evolved and and in going hand in hand and w with what the audience expectations were you know uh, the audiences became more and more educated so the storylines could be more complicated and you could have flashbacks and flash forwards and and you could do all kinds of trickery where you know uh, early on that would have been confusing and and, and terrifying probably uh, and, until we're at a place now where uh, audiences are so uh, aware and so uh, educated that you know they they don't suffer fools easy. And if if it's not a good story, I mean, all of us, if if you're sucked into a story, you can get away with a lot. But if 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 the story happens to be uh, missing something, then all the other imperfections are going to come singing right through. So. Uh, and of course, now you can stop and free frame and rewind and look things up. And, you know, that's not something you, you had uh, in a movie theater. You know, once it went by, it's, it's, it's gone. And it's just your, your memory and the reciprocity of those images that, that would even give you the clue as to something uh, being uh, out of place. But uh, it, it kept evolving and getting better. And, and the, the responsibilities of keeping an audience engaged evolved and the cinematographers had to as well. And that came into compositions and quality of light and directions of light and style. And it all just evolved until it became this great, fantastic thing. And we're kind of at an apex now where, you know, uh, these cameras are so sophisticated in the digital world that it is certainly much easier to get an image. It still doesn't make the image pretty and it still doesn't mean the light's coming from the right, right side or the camera's in the right position or the movement's telling the right story and people think that you can pan around and shoot something and, and you can if it's based on a reality tv show or something that's news footage but if you try to take a dinner scene and you stick it outside during the day 
and you have 12 people and it takes three days to shoot it and you have to match each shot to the other and make them just as interesting visually as 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 the wide shot and then every other close-up and medium and twos and all that that takes a lot of work and that's a lot of experience to be able to master that and so uh it gets easier and it gets more complicated because i think the expectations uh keep going up of course the the level things are at now is so high that it almost feels like it's even harder to get into it even though all the the means of getting into filmmaking the availability of the equipment is now at a point where it's also equally high where i can get the same camera package you guys use to shoot the biggest feature film and i can get that for a few hundred dollars a day you can it's it's kind of extraordinary it's like the the technology pushes the art the art pushes the technology and every time something amazing is done it sets the bar higher but then everyone else kind of rises up with it where they all now know what's possible the same kind of thing happens in sports it's like no one thought a four minute mile could be run until someone did it and then all of a sudden more people could do it nobody ever thought they'd beat tiger woods and now all those kids that grew up watching him play are all the ones whooping him on the course every day because they took everything they learned from him the workouts the muscle the discipline and now they're better it's really interesting and yet even even with all that being the case some of the best films probably ever made of all time even you know a hundred years from now are some of the first films ever made or at least you know maybe not the first films but you know in the first half of 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 the last century i think without a doubt you know and it all boiled down to good stories with content that the human experience or something uh that we all could uh relate to yeah it, it all comes down to story that certainly informs uh everything and and the cinematography when it's operating at at the level where it really is making people immersed into the world of the story. That's that's the cinematography that I really love. And and I felt that on Tales from the Loop. I really felt like the the place and the kind of surrealness of of what's happening in the story became my world as I was watching that. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about the project and what drew you to it and how you went about adapting the visuals from the paintings into the visuals on the screen. Absolutely. Um, I was aware of the book sometime last year. uh, And then I think it maybe it was in November or December when I got a phone call from Mark Romanek, uh, the director, uh, asking me if I would be interested in doing a television project. Um, Up to that point, I had shot you know, uh, features and then commercials and music videos, but I'd never done a television program or something made for television. Right. Yeah. This is your first TV project. First go at it. And, uh, you know, Fincher had done a couple, you know, Mindhunter and, and House of Cards, but uh, he didn't want his core crew to be obligated to the length of those schedules in the event that he took a movie in between, you know, he would EP those and he would direct two of the episodes, uh, but he wouldn't direct every episode. So he wanted us to stay available. And so we, none of us did the, uh, did the length of this, of the run of those shows. 
and I had been looking to do something. It just wanted to be something that would have the the weight to it that I I thought uh, it uh, that I deserved to make my kind of break into it. But I mean, it's a marvelous time to for television. It's the the program is unbelievable. The quality of the shows and the intellect behind them, and the way that they deliver such amazing quality, high end projects on on. Uh, you know, in, in such short times is, is phenomenal. And it's it's really a new age of television. And so it was very exciting to have an opportunity to do it and have an opportunity to do it with a co-collaborator, someone that I had worked with in the past. You know, Mark and I have done lots of music videos and commercials, and I shot One Hour Photo, his first feature. And, and so this made perfect sense to, to if I want if I was going to go do it, to do, do it with somebody that I – that I respected and admired their aesthetics and, and their filmmaking. And so we jumped in together. So really early on, um, you know, the book was the, was the map uh, and talking to Mark and getting into Mark's head and to Nathaniel Halper and the, the writer slash showrunner of Tales from the Loop, um, we decided to extract what, what the, the core imagery represented but find a language that was better suited for live action television that's that people could relate to and was tangible something you could touch and some of the images in those in that book are so stark or so uh highly stylized that it didn't see it seemed to me that it would be distracting uh you would lose track of the humanity the stories with the the delicacy of the stories would be lost in such kind of overpowering or uh super dramatic imagery so so we took the best of that and then kind of discovered our own language within that to represent simon's work but to make it something that was more relatable. And how much of, of the set design were you involved in? Because the set design of the show is, you know, one of the most directly adapted parts of the paintings. Yeah. I mean, Philip Messino is the production designer and super talented, successful guy. Uh, and so what my involvement came about when we were deciding about sources and uh the, you know for, first of all we decided what the language the visual language was going to be and what was motivating light and where was it coming from and why and once we once we worked through that then it was easy to to then look at sets and help design what you know with with my needs in in mind and then keeping Phillips kind of overall image alive uh which was hugely influenced by simon's paintings and what of that could we bring and what of that would we have to adjust because not all of simon's work represented our story since our story was a manufactured story based on those images you know you know what i mean right yeah because the 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 really the source material was imagery and your role as a cinematographer is to essentially be in charge of the imagery. So did you have any role in in the uh, script writing process or any input in how the stories should uh, unfold? Um, only from only from the perspective of how how we presented scenes, how we photographed them, how we moved the camera, what time of day did we elect to do it in. Um, 
you know, uh, otherwise the story was pretty well, pretty well crafted and really, really thought out. Um, there, if you can imagine, I, I haven't seen all the episodes myself, but every storyline is super complicated. And, and uh, although each episode is, a, is multi-layered. A, yeah. And each episode is, a, is an individual episode. They all overlap each other and things that happen in this happen three others. And there was this whole constant kind of head turning, twisting thing that was going on all the time. And uh, Nathaniel just was so clever uh, about how to present it and how to, uh, and spot on it seems with the, the cadence and the kind of the tempo to, to be unique um, in a day when everything is special effects and action driven. This is kind of a, a, an amazing relief from that. And yeah, like a breath. Yeah. And unfortunately uh, is perfectly timed for this weird uh, experience that we're all having right now. So that, you know, would be on the fortuitous side. Uh, but but uh, I think it's going to work out really well. Um, so I did it in that standpoint. Um, okay. And then, of course, you know, everybody was open to ideas about where certain things could happen. I mean, if we get stuck here, how can we do this or what would how would we utilize this? You know, uh, even though it never felt like we were short on resources, you never have what you need and you're always within budgets and you always have time restraints and you always have to be respectful of all those elements. Uh, you can be indulgent in one place, but then it takes away from something else. So, um, you know, those things uh, I could bring and influence, you know, let's do this here. And how about if we do this here? What if we switch this or can we do this instead of this and that kind of stuff. And, and everybody was very collaborative and trying to keep the integrity of the story, but make the best choices. And, and one example of that is our episode has two children in it. And uh, no matter where you, you know, if you're, if you were here or if you're in Canada, uh, there's child labor laws that are, that are pretty, pretty, uh, universal and in, in Canada is, it takes a step beyond and protects the kids. We, we had that, we had, uh, the first couple of weeks we shot, it was minus 32 outside. So you have weather factors and, and where were you shooting? Uh, we were in, uh, Manitoba in Winnipeg. Okay. And so you have to have considerations for how long people can be exposed and certainly how long kids can be exposed uh, when, it, when it's really that cold out. Mm -hmm. And so we had maybe 10 scenes to do at night, uh, which proved to be a dilemma for us because night came, night came fairly early uh, and the kids' cutoff time was, was, you know, we were limited to eight hours a day with them. Uh, and some of that had to be food and school and warm time. So we made it, we made a decision uh based on when we were scouting that the twilight seemed to last particularly long that far north so we'd have a good hour of kind of dust to twilight we went into this notion that what if we could utilize two cameras and shoot over many days shoot our night sequences all at twilight and the advantage uh aesthetically for us is that it gives you some texture in the sky. It separates trees. Um, it has this magic, surreal quality to it. And if that's the way it is every time it's night, then that's just the way it is in that part of the world in this story at night. Mm -hmm. And people buy right into it. And so the first night, the first night where that came up, 
I had had all the normal things. I had condors and lights up on cranes and everything and ready to go. Should should we not make it in time? And if it was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And so we rehearsed uh, the scene for about an hour, blocked out all of our coverage and then waited for the light to be right. And we barely made it the first day, but we made it. And we all looked at each other and thought, well, it's beautiful. I think we can do this. We just have to really be uh, pragmatic and judicious with the time. And, you know, any any kind of screw-ups, like somebody's wrong, camera fails, wardrobe is wrong, uh, something changed the shot to something else, we wouldn't make the day. Any of the usual fiascos on set that are constantly either coming up or just about to come up <laughs> <laughs> the things that happen every day at the perfect timing yeah and uh and we did that we did that for all of our night work and i'm really happy with the way it comes out and it facilitated us with the child labor laws with our cast with the cold uh and it really brings an elegant softness to that goes hand in hand with the west of the way that the that the show looks it sure does it almost feels like with the way the story is, how the loop is affecting the the town and the people in it, it feels like it it creates a little um, like a snow globe effect. Yeah. Where it's a self contained little universe where nighttime is twilight and there is no you know other reality. That is how it is there. It creates the very surreal feeling, and it and it is beautiful and striking, and fits with the story. And I I love. I love how that happened, how it was kind of a mix of a technical challenge with, uh, I guess you could call it a political, you know, balancing act that informed the artistic choices. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it proved to be uh, very resourceful and economical for us on all fronts, in shooting time, in child time, in expense, in labor, in cold, in crew fatigue, and everything. And you got to be responsible. That's part of the thing is when you have that title role and you have, you know, 150 people out in the snow and you have all this money, um, you know, there's a responsibility there that uh, you're, you're, you're playing with a lot of expenses. And, and so you need to be pragmatic and deliver. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that comes from experience too, um, to know what you can pull off and what you can't and how to be prepared for the unexpected. Is there anything else? I mean, the lighting design in the show is really interesting with the way the, you know, you create a somewhat of a alternative version of reality slash future, um, you know, but still recognizable. Like, like I've never seen a street lamp like I saw in that show, but obviously I completely buy into it as a, a street lamp that is, t- you know, normal for, for the reality of the show. So can you uh, tell me a little bit about how you um, informed the uh, production design incorporation of the lighting into into the sets? Well, that, that that was that was one of the things we were struggling with. I mean, in Simon's, one of the things that stands out in Simon's artwork is is the novelty of scenes playing out that can be a car parked with somebody having a picnic, but in the background is a broken down robot. Uh, that's way in the future, but it's dilapidated. So it's in the past, but these people are are oblivious to it. It's something that they see all the time and it means nothing to them. And so to kind of layer in all, all the nuances of this uh, past sci-fi world 
that these people kind of are all used to dealing with and, and don't acknowledge was really wonderful. And how far do you go and what, what, what does that exactly mean? And at the beginning, we were looking into kind of like having unnatural light sources and, and, and every scene being lit from above that you and there's no justification of where it's coming from. And it just could be this weird kind of thing that happens in, in this uh, town, <clears throat> excuse me, and could blame it on the loop or whatever. Uh, but it became like we couldn't find a quality of light or a justification that seemed like it could work everywhere and, and not be something that was just a weird kind of forced. Like a gimmick. Gimmick. And I didn't want to yeah. like start that and then find like down the road, like, well, it can't work here and it doesn't work here and it doesn't work here. And now there's no justification why like sometimes they're lit from a, in a house from a, an old wooden house and there's some kind of glowing ceiling that you don't see. And, and so I never felt good about it. So we abandoned it. And, and then kind of stayed with the original philosophy, was, which was be as organic and natural as you can and let the oddities and nuances stand out. Let this humanity live, shoot it classically so that people are drawn into this without being too precious, and then allow the things to stand out on their own. And that's basically what we did. Hmm. I mean, all the interiors are motivated by practicals, uh, obviously offset by my lights, but... Uh, that was always the, the 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 motivation for the sources, and then daylight through windows, and then outside controlling it and shooting at the right time of days, and and uh, taking away light so that it had this kind of weight to all the exteriors. Um, right. And then and then the rest of it was camera movement. We made a very conscious choice to to take a very Scandinavian approach to that in, in camera movement and pace. Uh, and to let things drag on in 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 camera movement and length of shots, uh, and let the characters perform and and let their words be heard. And so we kind of you know watched and reviewed some of Bergman's films. And yeah, I was gonna say you did Sven Proud. Yeah, Sven and. Tchaikovsky Ty- Ty- uh, and Kolowski mm-hmm. were all like filmmakers that we uh, loved uh, and, and let influence kind of a, a direction in how we were going to move the camera and the tempo of, of the piece. And then, of course, Sven and Winters and all those Bergman movies are always in, in my head. So, and of course, I spent uh, you know half a year in Sweden on Dragon Tattoo. So, um, it, it all, it all kind of came together. Yeah. You're, you're, you're well-versed <laughs> kind of perfectly yeah. matched for the project. basically. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the camera work you mentioned is definitely one of the things I noticed and, and it felt like it perfectly matched the images and accentuated the feeling of the, uh, of the scenes, you know, kind of not quite clinical and cold, but still detached and then observing without having quite the level of robotic omniscience that Fincher likes. No, we were a little more organic about that. Yeah, it was more organic, but still kind of on the cooler detached side. Uh, yeah, yeah. A little bit, a little bit less, uh, formal mm-hmm. than, than you might get with, uh, if, if I was shooting for David, but, 
but um, definitely keeping engaged and pushing camera movements in a way that uh, doesn't draw attention to the movement as much as it draws attention to what you're looking at and to the, 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 the performance that's happening. And to evoking the feeling of whatever the scene is about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are there any special photographic techniques that you use on Tales from the Loop? We we wanted to bring something big to TV. I mean, we're not the first people to do that. Uh, we didn't want to get into anamorphic, but we wanted to use something large format, and we wanted to use 70-millimeter glass. Mm. And we wanted to use glass, the 70-millimeter the large format aspect, just to get this place that's so big and flat and wide and cold um, to try to feel that on a 16 by nine screen. Um, and the large format was to accommodate the 70 mil and the 70 mil gives us a much shallower depth of field, which then allows us to make an audience focus where we want them to. And in this case, uh, this little girl's world has been turned upside down and she is lost in this place. And having minimum depth of field creates this tension of her journey when she's trying to find what she's missing. Mm -hmm. And so that was a great tool that we wanted to embellish. On top of which, I used these lenses that Panavision had not released yet called Panaspeeds. And they uh, are beautiful bouquet of glass with warmth and softness uh, with some artifacting that that um, just makes things not perfect, and that was something that we wanted to embrace. And so, uh, I reached out to Panavision, and they sent me up this. It was the first kind of set that they had a test set, and uh, I actually had to call Dan Sasaki, who's their lens genius at Panavision, and request two more to complete the set because uh, they were all prototypes. And so he threw together uh, two more lenses that borrowed and, and assembled pieces from other things and came up. And it was funny because they were kind of like 52 millimeters and 37 millimeters because that's just what happened when they were trying to do it. Yeah, but I was like, I was a beggar and I was like, uh, that's amazing, you know, that, uh, that you would uh, do that for us. And then we had to use uh, Primos, uh, the Primo 70s to kind of offset anything that we were missing or when we had uh, second units or uh, uh, plate unit going out and stuff uh and 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 then for us we used them on the longer end because it was much easier to to shoot something with the panda 70s and get kind of the nuances of the lens and then it was less you mean the primo 70s yeah no they, so no, doing, okay. the panda the 70 mils okay were what we captured the wider stuff that gave us more of the nuances and then we could throw on a longer 70 primo i get it. uh because because those imperfections weren't as kind of critical in a close-up as they were, and then maybe throw in a little uh, diffusion to make them all match. I get it. Yeah, I was going to ask how you made those those match because the primos are kind of the exact opposite of the you know of the pan speeds in regard to the way they artifact and flare and 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 they yeah they're they're kind of perfect basically. Right. So very interesting. And you you. You spoke about the format you shot on using the lenses, but nothing about the camera that uh, was actually capturing that. So what did what did you shoot on? Well, uh, one led to the other. I mean, our first choice was to find find the glass that we wanted because we knew we wanted to go seventy mil. And Panavision 
has the largest library. You know, they they just have the bag- biggest inventory of, of of glass and certainly of, of large format glass. Uh, and I have shot predominantly on the red cameras, and so to go to Panavision and use the DXL2, which is the red sensor in a rehoused Panavision body, mm-hmm. um, was a perfect perfect solution for me you know i was very comfortable with the camera and the sensor and i ended up using the lut for the dxl2 which i i fell in love with only to find out later from michael sioni of lightiron that that lut is something that he and ian vortek the colorist uh kind of created off of uh the films that i had di'd there oh wow very nice so they're like yeah i bet you like it it's it's your work <laughs> it's your aesthetic baked baked right in <laughs> kind of yeah kind of i mean and so that's that's uh that's what we did and then uh when we finished the the show we finished it at light iron and ian was uh, my colorist and uh and then that's where we put the final touches on it you know hmm. so we've all heard about shooting for the edit uh but can you talk a little bit about shooting with your colorist in mind and and specifically uh with regards to lighting with your colorist in mind you've you've done a lot of work where the final look of the film is almost equally crafted in the post-production process as it is on set so how do you approach that in order to get what you have in mind for the final look well let me clarify something first okay I, I all the Fincher movies that, that I did, we we didn't have a, a a DI on set. We we shot, we sent the cards off to the editor, they proofed it, uh, encoded it, and and then started cutting cutting. Mm-hmm. I would say that you could probably cut together dailies and it be acceptable. I I think that we were are really good at matching shots and and we try to you know he and i both believe to trying to do as much in camera as you possibly can and then only resort to post and di when 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 that is the in fact the best solution so i i try to do as much as i can and get the color as right in camera from the beginning and then uh and then i go in knowing what i have you know an entire world of technology to back me up and further fine tune it okay so much so and the relationship between ian and i is so good that with a limited schedule on a television program not having the luxury of several weeks like you would perhaps on a feature um i let ian do the first pass on his own so it was more efficient and and that probably would have sufficed to be released but then when we got in there we really got to hone in and and uh, and and do some magic, and you know, create a really interesting look, and and keep contrast alive, but kind of roll off the blacks a little bit in 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 areas where there was too much uh, contrast with snow and colors and sky, and and kind of create this overall softness to the to the piece that you know we shot it that way, but we were able to embellish it more in the DI, and then just fix and tune up little things here and there, and. Uh, and make everything match. It's really, you know, it's 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 one of the more rewarding parts of it because at that point, 
it's it is truly like painting you've you've done all the work now and now you sit back and and get to kind of like a, as if a painter could actually tune his painting up after he's painted it it's kind of like the holy grail of uh creating a piece of work when you can do that it's one of the things i love about the editing process you can spend as much time as you have to fine tune it to be exactly what you wanted providing you know you captured it uh with the ability to do that in the first place and obviously you light with that uh you know in mind on set did you incorporate the paintings as references in the process of coloring um i brought a book for for i sent ian a book um and we talked about what my vision was he had been doing he'd been doing the dailies all along anyway so he was very familiar with the footage and what we were going for and you know and i send i i do some you know corrections on set and send those to him as references so he knew what the idea was and where we were headed with it and uh then we i sent him the book uh to go over and um in as much as as you know they were the foundation for things and tones but again, you know, it, with the live action versus a painting, it, it, it's a bit of a different beast. And to keep an audience uh, engaged you, in our story, I think it was imperative to keep the connection to the humanity. And I think that those can get lost sometimes, like I said, when, when images become too strong or overpowering or distance yourself from them when they're too hyper real and not something that somebody can relate to. Right, right. I, well, I agree. You have to, especially... With a show like this, where you're asking people to buy into a very uh, surreal reality, you need to keep it from going completely uh, off the walls visually. Yeah, that was part of the that was part of the philosophy from the very beginning is that we didn't want to add too much trickery to something that already is. We're asking the audience to believe us and go along this journey uh, and suspend reality that one of the best ways to keep that is to keep the visuals, the integrity of the visuals is something they can relate to. So then you could pull the rug out from them with something else. Yeah. Once they've already invested and, and suspended their disbelief. Right. Exactly. Uh There you go. Well, that's visual storytelling operating in service of (laughs) its highest calling, basically. I I hope so. Wow. So how do you, how do you approach a script and begin visualizing it? Speaking of visual storytelling, what is your process like from the moment you first read a script to when you are confident in knowing how you want the project to be visualized? Well, I, 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 I've said this and I apologize for being redundant, but it it starts with the story. And so uh, I read the script kind of with a blank, palette and just want to be sucked into the story um it's impossible not to see images and visualize it everybody does uh and and me in particular i can't not be a cameraman reading this and go oh god how are we going to do that or oh that's super exciting or i can't wait to do this but truly it's like a first impression and uh you can't get too invested in it because you haven't really gotten into the head of the director uh, and in, and in, in the television show, the showrunner, writer. And so you really got to find out what everything actually means and what those perspectives were and why did this happen this way? Uh, and what is the tempo and what are we, what is the final message in the walkaway? And it starts evolving and taking shape. 
and you spend time with the director and the and the writer uh, scouting and discussing locations and discussing set options and discussing uh, talent and you start to see things coming together and some set designs and you start whittling down how scenes are going to be broken down. Like you can take a scene of people playing cards and they can play cards on the outside of a deck. They can play cards in a, in a room. They can play cards in a dungeon. They can play cards on an airplane. So what is it best serves us? And so you start getting all those things whittled down and find out where you put the most weight and where right. these scenes can have the most impetus. And then uh, you start finding them or searching or discovering like, well, this isn't an airplane, but this is this and it does that. And like, that's amazing because this is next to this and we can do this. And what if we do the camera like this? And, and it starts becoming more apparent and you evolve and you decide. And then, you know, ultimately it, you have to weigh everything. You have to wear the time you have, the money and support you have, uh, and then uh, the locations and the sets and and um, you make the best choices and come up with the methodology that will best support your idea of what the visual languages be and within all the other parameters. But it's always about the story, the talent, the sets. You know, once I, I can imagine it, but, but once I'm in the set and once I see the windows and once I watch the rehearsal, it becomes crystal clear. But up until that point, I have a notion of it, but I'm I'm less of a technician from uh, a mathematical technician and placing things here because this value is this and more something that no 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 knock you know take the light down to the bottom of the stairs and don't aim it up the staircase bounce it off the sidewall and watch what happens and see and then that's way better that's what this feels like that's scary that's going to have emotion that's not motivated by what you normally would be and that looks intriguing to me and so i would have all the lights there but i, I like to turn a lot of stuff off <laughs> Uh-huh. Start from a blank canvas lighting wise. <laughs> well, you got to have them in the places that you want. You got to have backup in case something changes or, you know, you're like, well, that doesn't work. Or really, she wants to walk over to this window. But uh, what do I do there? And then you, you, you learn to where it's pragmatic to, to have a, a, a backup plan or where you can utilize something else within a short amount of time. And, uh, and you get creative. And sometimes you can do that. And sometimes you just have to take the time it takes to change changes. But, but um, you know, because it's, a, it's an ebb and flow thing. It's, there, there are no absolutes. Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've heard a lot of different f philosophies as, a, as an approach to crafting the look of a project. You know, some do it top down, some do it bottom up. And it really seems like what you do is more of an inside out approach, really starting from the core of the emotions and the purpose of the scene. And then just kind of working from there to figure out what serves that. A hundred percent. I mean... I, I'm talking about tales from the loop, but if you had something that was a uh, Milan Rouge, then that's going to st straight off the bat. Sure. There's a hundred ways of doing that, but there is a world that you're going to live in right away. And what you make of that then can become that. Or if you're on a spaceship or if you're on a sailing ship in the 1800s, there are certain things that you kind of like start with and then you can grow from that. Yeah, I completely agree. Each project kind of comes in, uh, automatically with its own uh, look uh, inherent in it, depending on the project, of course. But that's why there's genres, and generally each story kind of has a, a world that it's in that demands a specific look. And then it's just a matter of sort of how, how do you uh, 
make it unique and what are the nuances of how that's actually applied and how do you own it and how do you make it yours and mm -hmm. what does that what does that mean and and uh careful never to get in the way of the story you know uh, the worst thing you could do is showboat and kind of be a distraction uh, rather than something that uh, elicits uh, emotions from people. Yeah, your lighting and your cinematography in general never feels like a distraction. It always feels like it's uh, organic, as you mentioned, organic to the story. I was going to say that one of my one of my favorite kind of uh, stories in regards to that is uh, uh, Harris Savitas, uh, such a talented. Oh, yeah. Man, I don't know if you ever got to speak to him. No, I haven't. But I've admired him and his work. <laughs> he he did a movie called Milk. Mm -hmm. And it, it was so beautiful and so hands-off and so natural looking. And should have been nominated for an Oscar. And, or should have won an Oscar. And people go, well, he just used available light. <laughs> you just have to go like... Yes, you dumb shit. That's all they did is just use available light. Do you know how hard it is to light something all day long on a set that you thought was real and have people run around in circles and you never notice that? Mm -hmm. That is talent. That is like that is the hardest thing to do. And uh, he did it so well that he kind of nullified his effort. Mm, interesting. Or another way of putting that is just he was operating at such a high level in that regard that his work went over most people's ability to even comprehend it because they're not well versed enough in the craft to be able to appreciate it okay fair enough <laughs> well that that would be my argument at least i like it it's a good argument but i completely agree he was a master at at that kind of natural lighting so it feels completely unlit 100 percent. yeah yeah it's very, very special. It, it uh, reminds me to kind of go back and look at some of his work, except for uh, the uh, the moment in the game with the black lights. That definitely feels lit to me. <laughs> that was lit. Yeah, yeah that was that, definitely lit. Not very naturalistic in, in my book. I don't think anybody's book, so that's okay. Um, uh, is there a favorite shot that you have? Do you Do you have a shot that you're proudest of that either represents... Um, everything that you strive for and that you like doing in a single shot or anything like that? Wow, uh, that's a hard one. Um, I know in Fight Club, one of my favorite shots is a close-up of Helena Bottom Carter as she's watching one of the help groups and she has a big hat and sunglasses and smoking a cigarette. I'm seeing it in my head right now. It's so <laughs> iconic. It's it's funny because in the in the film we had a camera problem twice when we did that shot so i ended up shooting that shot three times in different locations you know because we didn't see really what was behind her hmm. but uh it, it was a very striking shot and and really beautiful and she looked so good and it's so iconic with the cigarette smoke and i think in thinking about why i like that shot so much is it kind of beckons slightly to the Rachel Rachel's shot. yeah Rachel's shot and Decker's in interviewing her and I think probably subconsciously that's why I like that shot so much because I can tip my hat to my dad but uh -huh. I have I have uh, since since we were talking about Tales from the Loop I have two shots in that that are I, that really uh, I liked uh, one is the introduction to the little girl and we pan through the classroom right and find her at desk. And that entire scene is really embellic of my kind of work and what I find in my aesthetics that I like the most. 
Um, I actually photographed it richer than what it is in the in the show. But that whole sequence in that classroom was really beautiful. And then uh, my other favorite shot is when she she comes home from school and her, hears her mother having an argument, and she's leaning against the wall with the windows in the background, the water heater, and it just. When we did it, when I lit it, when we did it, I just couldn't help but smile because it just was everything I wanted it to be, and that that usually doesn't happen so easily. <laughs> yeah how how was it everything you wanted to, it to be? What was your intention for it? Ah, uh, there was just enough detail in her face, and she was more or less silhouette, but you saw enough of her to know it, it just told the story of a little girl hearing something, afraid, small in the world in this house um i just i just like it's it did what it was supposed to do mm. mm-hmm. in, yeah. in every way it did and so you know you, you plan out shots to cover all the categories but they don't always actually serve everything as well as as some shots do and that just was a perfect perfect shot for that moment in the story what did you do lighting wise in order to get her just perfectly you know, uh, exposed for how you wanted her to be exposed in that situation. I, I made a light come through that. That was a set. Mm -hmm. And so I made a a light come through that back window. That was the main source that illuminated the, the laundry area and the water heater. Mm -hmm. And then I added a, a lamp, uh, through a window that you couldn't see through the door window that specifically bounced off the side wall to give her that little bit of fill on the side of the face to, so that ever so little bit of detail in her face. Uh-huh. It's like one of those things where it's a fine line. You don't want it to be a scary monster type moment. You want it to be a vulnerable moment right. and, and, and to be a complete silhouette felt uh, that you, you lessened her vulnerability. Right. You almost made her like a part of the, you know, what is she up to now? Instead of like, Oh, that, instead of having empathy for her and that was the point very interesting the the aspects that you're keeping in the back of your mind always not just about what looks good what looks real for the scene but also what does this mean what 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 is the metaphorical implication of how this is lit and how does it affect the audience um i don't recall seeing an eye light but did you intentionally put any kind of eye light in her in that moment not not in that shot and then by the time uh we shot the coverage which we shot simultaneously uh of of her and then seeing the mother and father or mother and uncle silhouette in the background wasn't necessary because the light that i bounced off the side wall was was giving her from that from the from my camera was the profile but the b camera was into the her face you could see the detail in her eyes i follow okay and when you say you bounced a lamp, um, what lamp did you use on the wall? Mm, I want to say it was. Do you recall? A, I want to say it was a TK tungsten lamp with a Fresno. Okay. Did you use a um, LEDs or any like innovative lighting technologies on the show? Yep. It's hard not to nowadays. They're so efficient and uh, yeah. plug them into walls, and they stay cool and temperature, and can change colors and dim and do all kinds of wonderful things. So. Uh, we used them quite a bit, you know. Um, I try to stay true to whatever the source is. So if there's a practical in a room, then I want to use a tungsten source of some sort. Uh, but I'm not a, mm-hmm. to a tungsten LED if it can be in a, it put in a place and dis- diffused in a manner where it still has the characteristics of a tungsten light bulb through a shade or something. Mm-hmm. For daylight, it, it can be an array of things, you know. Um, 
it depends on the type of day when we are doing dusk stuff and and uh, twilight stuff uh it was always leds and then when we were doing daylight it was always 20k's through windows mm-hmm. okay and and there's a moment where um the last time we see uh the little girl's mother and she's looking into some kind of screen that has a very interesting lighting effect was that a uh, uh, CGI effect or CGI um, augmenting her just looking into a light or did you use some kind of a projector to create the sort of like dancing light effect? You mean you mean when she's in the office and the little girl's looking yeah. over her shoulder to it? Uh, yeah, we <laughs> we had to, we did a lot of testing to figure out what that was going to be and, and went through a lot of different uh, sources to figure that out. But we ultimately uh took a bulb and put it in a fish tank in water and allowed it to move and undulate and then have the water refractions coming around it so that it came kind of like this really kind of uh, unnatural light source characteristics. Wow. I can completely see how that... Yeah, it got to be a problem. Uh At some point there was a problem because uh the lamp inside the water heated the water up till it was boiling it was creating steam so we had smoke in the room but then you had white steam coming out from behind it and then some at at the beginning it was like oh quick shoot that looks so bizarre and cool and then it got to be like you know someone's cooking back there and like (laughs) and we had to put a fan in the back to try to dissipate the steam wow well i didn't know you could boil water with a light bulb but i guess it makes sense they get so hot oh yeah yeah, wow. for sure. The way that the kind of the filaments of light were coming out from that, um, they were like projected into the air almost. Is that just naturally happening with uh, the light, you know, um, refracting and, and reflecting off the, the smoke in the room? Yep, the light bulb and the bowl that the liquid was in and the liquid itself and then the atmosphere uh, all, all contributed to that. So a completely practical effect, no like digital trickery. No, no trickery on that one. Very cool. Cause it almost feels like it, it looks like, um, it was created in a computer cause I've never seen a lighting effect like that before. So cool. <laughs> Neither had we. So that, cool. That was the challenge. Mark said, I wanted, I want it to be this light source that no one's ever seen before. And you're like, not again. Everybody wants something one's ever seen before what really hasn't ever been seen before but yeah it feels like everything's been done everything's been seen (laughs) and and we ended up milking the water out a little bit so that was part of it as well what do you mean by that uh we poured liquid into it so it wasn't clear water ah so you created yeah so it was a little bit um translucent rather than transparent Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh oh interesting and did you do tests at home in order to like uh prove the ideas or were these just on set coming up with how to do that we had test days on set and so we we did all that during our test days we discovered that right interesting wow well what a cool effect and i'm glad um i asked about that because i think sure that is such a cool thing that you actually created something new that i don't think has ever been done lighting wise in any sort of film or television show and who knows? Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the uh, the secret with me. <laughs> of course. Are there, speaking of secrets, one of my last questions is about um, any little photographic tricks that you're fond of using when it comes to either lighting or, or lenses and, and um, camera techniques? Mm, not, not per se. I mean, I, I might say that uh, <clears throat> I tend to like to round out my sources so that if you see a source in someone's eyes, 
that it looks like something that's more organic instead of a square frame, mm-hmm. unless that frame is motivated by like a square window or some other object that's practical. Otherwise, you know, you see uh, a 12 by 12 frame or a 4 by 4 frame or whatever it happens to be reflected back in someone's eyes. And that's really uncharacteristic of what happens in nature or the world, especially if it's yeah. practical lamp sources, they tend to be round. So uh, I tend to like to make my sources round so that it fits the eye better. Uh-huh. Uh, on a personal level for me, I've always looked at the close-ups in a lot of the films you've done with Fincher and try to figure out what makes them special and unique and why they feel different than other close-ups I've seen. And I try to figure out, do they have a rule like they shoot all close-ups only on lenses longer than like, you know, a 50 millimeter? Are they shooting these close-ups at a, you know, slightly overcranked speed or what are you guys doing? <laughs> there, there is no, there is no secret answer to that question. Um, again, it all depends on what you decide to uh, use as a storytelling technique for that movie. Um, but I would say in general, both David and I uh, prefer to shoot close-ups on something that's a little wider. Like, uh, our favorite lens is the 40 when we're doing that. And the reason being, I mean, there's no absolute rules. And we, we, of course, we use longer lenses and stuff. But for a majority of the stories, you want to keep the person grounded in the place that they're at. You want to know where they are and why what's happening is happening. And if you shoot a 100 millimeter lens, you might as well be against black mush or whatever behind them. But if you want context to what it is they're experiencing and where, Take a 40 that doesn't distort, push in, and leave room around the side so that you can still be present with them. Mm. I mean, it's not for every story, and it's not for every way of telling, but but uh, that's kind of one of the things that we like to do. Mm. And again, the 40 kind of fits with that because it doesn't look too wide. It doesn't cause distortion, yep. but it has the presence. That That is kind of the thing that I notice about the close-ups, thinking about them now. They do have a presence to them, and they feel very, like, tactile and there yeah you're still in the story yeah you're in the story again it goes back to the kind of the same thing you've been talking about the whole conversation as far as your (laughs) approach your philosophy how how you come at everything and everything comes from that yep it's beautiful it explains everything and it's so simple and i feel like it probably also solves a lot of the issues that someone who's faced with you know the things everyone is faced with on the set and in the business all the uncertainties all the technicalities all the considerations all the things that could kind of make someone either go crazy or just not do the best work that they're capable of because all the other things that are required just to do the work distract them from the mindset they need to be in in order to actually perform yeah, 100%. And I, I think a lot of young filmmakers spend so much time analyzing all their favorite films and shots. By the time they get their chance, they just want to do it all. And and that doesn't necessarily serve them or the story. Um, you'll get your chance. Be patient. You'll get to do every shot you want, but it has to be at the right time or it means nothing. I, I, I've actually assisted DPs that uh, had been waiting so long and wanted to do every technique and take the best, you know, take the, the most boldest choices and uh, end up not even finishing the show, getting fired or being too slow or micromanaging light so that the, if an actor moves a, a foot, it's, he's not lit anymore. And you're re- really not in a position to be doing that yet 
of course you want to make a name for yourself. Of course you want everything that you shoot to be something that's respected, but you need to finish the film too. Yeah, obviously, especially given the way that the industry is where you build up a reputation, you know, quickly and, and that's right. What it's like working with you and what you've actually done speaks more than, you know, whether you're super flashy and if you've done some super cool shot. A hundred percent. I'll, tell, I'll even simplify things a little bit about another one of uh, a way that I approach uh-huh. uh, LUTs. I have one LUT for an entire show. Do you? I have done that for every film. Uh, the reason being is I spent most of my life shooting on film. It was a particular film stock. I learned that film stock, and then I changed what I wanted to change with light and color and quality of sources or direction or diffusion or any of those things instead of trying to chase 20 LUTs or having a LUT for every setup and then having to adjust your lighting setup to that or your lights to this particular look, I would rather change it on in on set and and work with one stock. Okay, and so you don't find that that somehow um, hinders your ability to bring out uh, what each scene you know, should be rather than making them all kind of look the same. No, you do that with light. You do that with color. You do that with lensing. You do that with diffusion. You do that with time of the day. You do that with paint color and wardrobe and everything else. Mm. And then you still have some luxury to do fine tuning in a DI if if, if it so calls for it. But um, I don't know. I think I, I, it's just different philosophies. You know, you hear about people that have forty five LUTs for a show, and you're just going, okay. <laughs> When are you going to apply what? And how come it keeps bouncing all around? And how come the movie looks like so many different things? Yeah. No, I, I get. I totally get what you mean. It's interesting because, you know, learning from people and so many people achieve things that I admire, but they all kind of go about it different ways. So, you know, you want to learn from them and you hear about these techniques of having all those different LUTs and you think, oh, well, that, that sounds reasonable. But then your perspective about why not seems to me actually not just more reasonable but in the end more conducive to doing your best work because that so-called limitation of only having one LUT then actually requires you to really use all the other tools at your disposal which then of course elevates the work exactly okay cool so thank you so much it's been a real um a real pleasure speaking with you i really appreciate your time Oh, no, it's my pleasure, too. I really uh, appreciate people that, uh, that love the craft and the art. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Art of the Shot podcast. And thanks again to my guest, Jeff Cronenweth, along with Evidence Cameras for sponsoring the show. And I want to extend my gratitude to everyone who subscribed and reviewed the show so far. If you haven't yet, it would mean a lot to me if you'd do the same and help grow the show. Thank you. And I can't wait to share the next episode with you. Mm-hmm.